will tell me in a second. You sure you don't play guitar? Hello, everybody. We are live. We are live. And we're talking about music. We're talking about furniture. We got a lot of things going on. It's a very active Tuesday. As usual, welcome to the Data on Kubernetes community. It's a pleasure to be with all of you here today. We are doing our 68th, um, uh, 68th uh, live stream session. Um, so we've been doing a lot of things in the last year. Uh, as you can see, lots and lots of content. I believe that we got in content in contact actually the, the two of us several months ago. So it's nice that you know something that started such a long time ago is coming to fruition today. Um, the speaker that we have today is a very experienced speaker. Um, you can find lots of talks that he's given on YouTube about a lot of different topics. Uh, today is going to be a special one. Certainly going to be a special one. Um, the topic of operators is no stranger in our community. Mixing this though with CI/CD and GitOps is a little bit of a new flavor. So excited about that. Um, have some other questions as well to get into, but we are joined today by, I hope I get this correctly in terms of accents, Adam, not Adam, correct? No, just call me Adam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're joined by this lovely gentleman yeah. who's joined us live from Amsterdam. Um, and uh, anyway, very happy to have you with us. Can you just tell us a little about who you are, how you got into this space and, and what we're going to be talking about today? All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Bart, for, uh, for having me here. Um, so in the past uh, five years, I've been uh, working in the cloud-native Kubernetes space as a consultant. I was mostly focusing on uh, on the CI/CD and like the how to use uh, Kubernetes aspects and helping mm -hmm. uh, helping clients on uh, on that front, which also brought me uh, in contact with uh, with with operators and like yeah, building basically uh, more in-house platforms uh, using Kubernetes. Okay. And uh, together with my colleagues, a few years ago, we started the, uh, the, an open source project called the Java Operator SDK to make it possible for also, for, also for Java developers to, uh, to develop operators easily, uh, same as the uh, Go folks uh, can do. And yeah, otherwise, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm calling in uh, from Amsterdam. And uh, I moved here a few years ago. I'm, I love coffee and flight simulators. <laughs> it's a good combination. Yeah, it um, goes together really well. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, yeah, long flights, right? Um, you do have a guitar in the background, but that is not your guitar, or it's just it's just no, it's version. my uh, my wife sold the uh, old guitar, ah, which she doesn't okay. play anymore either. Okay. So, but, just, but it looks good. It decoration. looks good. It, yeah. fill, it fills yeah. out the room nicely. I like that. I like that. Um, okay. Later on, we can maybe take a look at, you know, talk about, I always like to see the comparisons and contrast between what folks like to do in their, in their free time and, and more technical things. But, when, you know, talking about these operators and thinking about developers, you know, because one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, DX. And so for people that are new out there to this kind of concept is developer experience. Two things. When did you first hear about developer experience? How do you define it? Um, I had no idea when I first heard about it. It must have been a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and how would I define it is, uh, is the same concept as UX, except uh, instead of uh, buttons, uh, being able to find the right button to do the right thing, you need to be able to find the right documentation, have the right APIs that are easy to use, etc. So basically being enabling developers to get their jobs done as quickly and efficiently and painlessly as possible. Okay. All right. So once again, thinking about the pain points, you know, what are the difficulties, the sort of empathy focus that comes into this. Um, and, and that being, with, with that in mind, I think a, a lot of this, as much as we say this in almost every, in every live stream, 
that as much as we're talking about technology, there's always a human side to this. You know, what's the suffering, yeah. the difficulties that folks are going through? So with that in mind, what because you mentioned previously developers, what are uh, you know how can you just explain as well too? Because we have different kinds of folks in the audience. Um, how do you define an operator? How do uh, you know how do developers interact with operators, and what are the problems that they frequently encounter? Right. Um... You mentioned pain points and 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 DX. So let me rather start with um, what the the general problem that uh, that I've seen in many companies I've worked with. Um, before we jump into into why operators okay. is is basically developers getting their hands on some resource, which is uh, the bigger the company or the more security and process conscious they are, it gets harder and harder, right? So like uh, I've seen developers uh, using the same database for three different purposes because they know that if they want to request a new one, that's going to take a few months. So they rather just don't go there. Um, so I'm thinking in this kind of enterprise environment where they're like, uh, where provisioning databases is a very, um, control process, very manual process. You have to send emails and requests and have to know the right people to uh, get it done uh, faster. Mm. And um, and so and here come operators which provide a, a paradigm that that can help with building out platforms that that allow for more uh, more self service to developers. So a big part of, of UX and the uh, the empathy with people is getting out of their way to be able to do their jobs, and that means self service. But self service doesn't just come for free. You actually have to do a lot of things to uh, to to make it work. So um, what operators are. Um, is it's actually a really simple concept. So because there are so many things you can do with operators, uh, people often get uh, get like a bit lost in the in the whole the whole topic is is really complex and and there are all kinds of nuances. But in the end, the whole whole thing is all about Kubernetes allowing you to store any kind of like custom resource. In, in the Kubernetes API server. So you can, the, the basic stuff you create are deployments, pods to run your containers and so on, and services to expose them to the outside world and, and these kind of objects. However, Kubernetes lets you define any kind of object in the, uh, in the API server. Basically, it's your database schema. The custom resource definition is your database schema, and then you can create instances of that or like as, as if they were kind of like documents. Yeah, it's, it's basically a document database. You can create documents that adhere to that schema. Um, so let's say, and here comes the part with like solving this, uh, this self-service provisioning problem. You can define, let's say, a resource of type uh, database and then allow developers to create instances of databases which will have the exact properties that you allow developers to uh, to define so let's say they'll probably not be able to define all the permissions and everything because that will come from like an internal business logic but they will be able to name the database they will be able to i know define the character encoding and and uh, what other um, any any kind of uh, of uh, parameter you can come up with, 
they store this as custom resources in the Kubernetes API server. And then you, as let's say the DevOps or database admin team can build an operator that encodes your organization's logic to actually providing that database to those developers. So with this, the developers get a nice familiar API because by this time they are, a, are very familiar to work with the Kubernetes API server. You can just do kubectl, create my resource, and then this operator in the background will be able to act on the information in that resource and provision the actual database. And that database doesn't need to be something that runs on Kubernetes. It might be your old Oracle database cluster, but this operator will have admin access to that cluster, can create a new database inside it, and then communicate the credentials back to the developer through the custom resources in the, in the Kubernetes API server. So in the end, this whole custom resource operator thing is more of a pattern rather a design pattern than an actual technology because Kubernetes in the end doesn't know that operators exist. Operators is just another thing running on the Kubernetes cluster that happens to talk to the Kubernetes API server to like read all the resources it's interested in. That was as short a description as I could manage. As you um, said, as you said, it's simple. It's really simple when it comes down to it. No, but, but, but perhaps it, maybe it's not as overwhelming as folks might, might see it as, as, as being. It does seem, and you know, and once again, in our community, a big thing has been these conversations about how can I get my data on Kubernetes, you know, stateful workloads, things of that nature. And operators do seem to be playing a very important role here. Yes, um, let, let me bring some clarity yeah. to that. So. Because what I have just described here is a very different use case to operators than what folks mostly use uh, operators for. So um, when you want to run some kind of database on Kubernetes and you use an operator for that, in that case, the operator is a more of a tool for the DevOps team to make sure that database runs correctly on Kubernetes. So in that case, the operator is not really managing the databases that the developers would use, like the database, like in MySQL, let's say you call it a schema, right? So it's not managing the schemas, but it's managing the actual running database processes to make sure that it's all clustered correctly and, and it's backed up and all these things. So in this case, um, and, and the custom resources that you use to control that operator will be something like a, I know, a, a Kafka instance, and then it actually spins up or a Kafka cluster or a yeah, whatever database uh, or like a MySQL cluster. While what, well, that's a different use case to allowing developers to, self-service through just provisioning database schemas, mm -hmm. right? You could, maybe you want to allow developers to spin up databases for themselves. Although that's, I think in production scenarios, not very likely, unless we are talking about like a hundred person developer team developing something massive that they just yeah, take care of all their stuff. Yeah, okay. One other thing to touch on, because you've mentioned custom resource a couple of times. It was mentioned by another one of our community members, um, Alvaro Hernandez, who is, is a fantastic reader, shout out to Alvaro, that he tweeted about two weeks ago that custom resource definition is his absolute favorite feature on Kubernetes. Why do you think that would be the case? Do you agree? And if not, what's your favorite feature? 
Um, I would still stick to the fact that uh, you can just run things really easily. <laughs> so um, I, I still like deployments. But uh, yes, custom resource definitions are, are awesome because it's a very simple feature. It just, it just turns the Kubernetes into a document database. And why that works really well, it's not better than any other document database, really. Um, why, why it works really well is that you're already using Kubernetes. So let's say this, this whole operator thing, if you are not using Kubernetes, it's worthless for you. Don't go and install Kubernetes because you want to run some operator because you want to use some custom resources. They are just mindless data structures, right? Mm -hmm. they, you will not be helped at all by uh, in, in that case. However, if, you're, if Kubernetes is already your target platform for deploying stuff, then suddenly um, you have the same exact CI CD pipeline, same tooling, same everything to store other kinds of resources that are related to your infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, maybe one resource is describing uh, Docker containers to be run and ports to be exposed. But from a developer team perspective, your database instance is also one of the resources that you will want to define for your environment. And it will sit really nicely next to all those other Kubernetes resources in like nice collection of your YAML files that you then put into Git. You run a CI-CD pipeline that then applies them to Kubernetes and then an operator can kick in and actually make sure that the database happens. Okay, good. But so you still favor deployments? That's okay. Um, every no, no, it's a, every not everyone's going to agree on the same thing. And, and once again, depending on experiences. And speaking of experiences, in your in 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 your learning process, you know now you're working at Styra. But how was what what were the things that worked the best for you? Because you know once again, talking about empathy and pain points and things like that, what have been some of the pain points that you've experienced along that, and how have you been able to get over them? Um. Can you be a bit more specific on like what 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 are we talking about like operators in general? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, with what the realization of also the self-service things, like how did you get to that yeah. point? What were the steps that you had to go through in order to get there? Yeah. Okay. Right. So um, my uh, the the most interesting experience I had with uh, with uh, applying operators uh, was uh, was building in like kind of enterprise grade CI/CD system where a developer team could ask for their own uh, like uh, CI/CD pipeline that would take their code from like uh, from like development all the way to production in a really controlled uh, compliance conscious environment and in this case so what we what the steps we went through was first we just implemented the CI/CD pipeline in the like naive way how you would do it in a uh, small company just create a Jenkins file extract some functions etc make sure that it works for one team now a small company at this point would just go and copy paste the Jenkins file and just reuse it for for other teams everybody would kind of customize it to their own needs and whatever um, but once you in this environment we had to deal with like hundreds of teams so that meant we, we had to fully automate the, the creation of it because it's never just a Jenkins file, right? It's namespaces on different Kubernetes clusters. You need to have the credentials to those and et cetera. So the next step was we created a 
command line application that could do the provisioning of all this, all the all the Jenkinses, the pipelines, the uh, the namespaces, um, actually even the Git repos because there was multiple Git repos and all that. So, and once we had that command line tool, you have to run that from on some under some credentials on, on somebody's machine. So it's still we still had to get an email from a development team to run the command line thing to provision something for them. And even provisioning was pretty automated and fast. Uh, we were still soon way overwhelmed with, uh, with requests and suddenly there were the new requests coming in to also change something that has already been created before. And that's when we started thinking about full self-service automation. And, uh, and we were thinking of like, okay, so we expose maybe an API. How do we, how do we give this self-service functionality to the developers? And we realized that we are already um, running on Kubernetes. So why don't we just give developers the option to like create objects in the Kubernetes API server? And we actually gave them the, 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 the object called team that they could create and and then a whole bunch of operators would kick in in the background, um, reacting to the Steam object and start going around the infrastructure and creating Git repos and Jenkinses and, and all the things that, uh, that needed to be created for a team. So that was the, uh, the, the journey to like full self-service. And in the end, we had to add an API server anyway in front of the whole thing because it turned out that just Kubernetes RBAC wasn't enough because we had to have rules like the developer who created something can delete it, not anybody but that particular person and like do some audit thing and whatever that uh, we couldn't get done with Kubernetes. So that was a really complicated uh, thing. And, but that's how that got me really deep into operators and, and we constantly were because this was a new Kubernetes project, we were constantly also asked all kinds of questions about like uh, exactly like the database provisioning. Yeah. So they had uh, their, um, I think it was uh, Microsoft SQL, like server farm basically. And now how do, should they run, do they need to run all that on Kubernetes now? Or like what, what, what to do now with the, with, the, with the database servers? And what we kept telling them was that um, now you should not run that on, on, on Kubernetes. There is no good reason for you to do so. If, you are, if you're happy with how your database cluster works, what you need to do is to really embrace the cloud native mindset is to just expose that MySQL cluster to your developers in a way that is fast, automated and, and, and easy to consume for developers. So while we never actually did this, but we really advocated to like creating maybe their own in-house operator that would reach out to the, to the Microsoft SQL server, create a database and then store the, the credentials in a secret for the developers to consume on in their namespace on the cluster. Okay, wow. So once again, I think that the importance here is practical hands-on experience. In your case, it was a particular project you were working on, starting out with Kubernetes, getting into the weeds, getting your hands dirty. And speaking of which, we got we got a comment on YouTube. We got a couple of comments. One that I'm gonna question that I'm gonna save for the end, um, which is related to decoration in your house, which I don't think is terribly relevant now, so we'll get to it later. The second question though, is that would it, someone's asking, would it be possible for you to show us maybe how things look, you know, under the hood? Um, yep. If you wanna share your screen and we can, we can take a look. Absolutely, Yeah. yes. <clears throat> 
And just a reminder to all the folks on YouTube, thanks for the questions. Try to be as specific as possible. If there's anything in particular that you wanna see, um, I'm sure that way it'll be easier to, to have things a little bit more focused. Always remember as well, you can check us out on Twitter. You can check us out on LinkedIn. Um, I, we have a speaker who's very available um, for, for questions and very knowledgeable. So yeah, so let's, uh, let's jump in and take a look. All right, so what I have here is a MySQL uh, operator written in the Java operator SDK, which right now we will not go into Java. Basically, this could be written in whatever. Um, the important stuff here that we need to look at. I have a MySQL server running on my Kubernetes cluster, but that's just a complete implementation detail that MySQL server could be running anywhere. Important is we will be using a single MySQL server. What we want to expose now is creating schemas in that MySQL server, not creating the MySQL server itself. So I'm closing this one and, oh, is this visible by the way? Should I try to increase the, maybe I'll try, I'll increase the font size. Yeah, if you can. Um... Let's see, if, it, if you're having difficulty seeing this, please just let us know in the YouTube chat and we'll, we'll adjust things. No, nah, I'll definitely, because yeah, I know that also of, some compression of, uh, like yeah, to happen. A little bit, yeah, a little bit of zoom always goes a long way. Yeah, totally. I think I'll add a little bit more. Let's make it 20. Is that good? It looks great to me. Um, folks out there, can you see? Can you see? Let's see. Any feedback? Seems to be okay. So yeah, go for it. All right. So the most important stuff, I'll not be really showing Java code today. I'll rather be showing the, uh, the, the schema. That's it. <laughs> so this is our custom resource. All we, all we, this is the, the, basically the API we give to the developers. All oh, they sorry, have access Sorry, if you can, can you zoom just a little bit more? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Let's make it 26, even 30. Yeah. Yeah, the left side I can't zoom in, but uh, I think that should be okay. Or there yeah. is this uh, this presentation mode that, uh, that IntelliJ has, but now that made everything full screen, which on my gigantic screen is kind of probably looking worse. So let's just not do that. Oh, look, everything became oh, bigger cool. on the left Good. side too now. All nice. right. So here we have, this is a standard, like non a custom, a Kubernetes custom resource. You can see it's mysql.sample, the Java operator SDK slash v1. That's my uh, type or the uh, short version mysql schema. It has a name and it has an encoding. That's it. I didn't go further to specify more parameters because I couldn't even really come up with anything. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I mentioned that I'm not really a database expert. So, um, but that said, you can imagine having a whole bunch of other things here. Now, um, this is the custom resource definition, slightly out of date. I think I should like, I'll need to, need to update this here, um, the version, but never mind that. So this is our, basically our, our schema defining our MySQL schema custom resource. So you can see that um, there is all kinds of boilerplate here. Um, then we define the plural name, we define the singular name, we define the kind, and then we have an open API v3 schema defining that the only 
required property is encoding and nothing else. So this is a really simple custom resource. But this is how a custom resource definition looks like. So what we do is we go to, um, do you see my console now? Yeah. Okay, I'll make that one uh, even larger too. Just a sec. Yeah, let's make that 30. Yep, okay. So what I'll do now is um, how, I, how I add this custom resource to the Kubernetes cluster, I type kubectl apply, crd.yaml, this is the custom resource. It's been already applied, but I'm just gonna show it again. Um, yes, well, it just says it's unchanged. But what this does now that we have um, our custom resource definition applied to the cluster is that I can ask Kubernetes stuff about this. So I can ask kubectl get um, schema. You can see that now Kubernetes understands what schema means. Maybe it would have been nicer to name it MySQL schema, but anyways, we mean the MySQL schema by this now, right? So I can, uh, I can list the MySQL uh, schemas. And I can create one. Here is my sample schema. It's named MyDB. The MySQL server that I'm running is actually exposed to my computer. This is all running on a remote Kubernetes cluster, but I just port forwarded it to my computer. My workbench is connected to that, and I can't make that bigger, but all we need here is just like, we can see that on the left side, there is a list of zero schemas. This MySQL server is completely empty. And I'm going to now create a new MySQL uh, uh, database by creating a Kubernetes custom resource. And for that, first I have to run my MySQL operator. Oh, it's already running. Okay, I'm way ahead of myself. Uh, all right, so that should just be then kubectl apply f uh, in the Kubernetes directory. What was the name of the file? Schema.yaml. Yes, so, so now my DB has been created. So that means that in the Kubernetes API server, now there is a, oh yeah, when I, when I type K, that's just, alias for kubectl, kubectl, um, kget schemas. And here we go, we can see our mydb schema. This doesn't mean that the actual database has already been created. This just means we created a custom resource in Kubernetes. We need our operator to now pick this up and create the actual schema in the MySQL server, which might or might not have happened. Let's see. Um, let's just go to MySQL workbench, say a little prayer, and it's not there. So that means that the, that the operator probably had some trouble doing this. And I need to exit the, uh, the presentation mode because I can't find the console. Otherwise, yes, we have a nice juicy exception here. No resource type found for... MySQL schema. Okay, the demo gods are not particularly kind to me today. Um, what the hell? 
I've wished at least for a, oh, it says unauthorized. That's strange. Let me try to just restart this. No worries. That might help. So now that I restart the operator, it will not expect any like action from me. Yeah, we are getting the same problem. Um, because the operator just notices immediately that a MySQL schema object has already been created in the Kubernetes API server. So that's, that's something I, I'll explain now why this is a really good thing. So the operator pattern makes everything really resilient because the operator doesn't rely on the operator running at the moment you as the user create the custom resource object. It's not like calling a synchronous API. It's a very asynchronous, robust system where the operator might or might not be running at the moment you create the custom resource, but once it starts up, it starts reconciling the real world to what you defined in the API server. And normally it would do that, except when it just fails to do so. That also means that let's say I would just delete this database, the operator would go and recreate it because its job is to constantly uh, uh, make the real world look like the definition, same like Kubernetes does with your deployments and pods. So JSON mapping exception. Okay, it expects, oh, why? Schema X. Hmm. Okay, I think the problem is that the schema object does not have. Oh, right. Yes, sorry. I was part of a little hackathon, I think, where people have actually changed this code. So I just need to switch to the official version of the of the code. Um, let me just do that real quick. Uh -huh. I need to grab this from, uh, maybe shoot me another question in the meanwhile while I'm messing around with this. Oh, we can do the off-topic question. Um, so the off-topic question that was asked quite early on, let's see by someone in our in our YouTube chat, was regarding the, uh, the decoration, the background is, let's see, let me get to my questions. And you, is that a pole dance bar behind you? Oh, yes. Very it, good. It is indeed, that's, uh, that's my wife's hobby. To, uh, Good for her. The thing is, I would totally do it. I would just be worried that I'd hurt myself. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I tried, and it's really, really difficult. Yeah, yeah. like not the not not the sexy kind of pole dancing, but the one where you like pull yourself up. <laughs> no, and it's, your, it's uh, your legs are above your head, and like it's more like the pole, pole fit. It's called pole fitness. Yeah, and it's like yeah, it's 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 really uh, really difficult. No, it seems really difficult. And you have a hardwood floor, so that's not a very forgiving surface if you fall. Yeah, well, honestly, in those poses, I guess if you fall, like, it's okay. it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kind of straight to the hospital at that point. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that, no, it's, I think, it's, like I said, I don't think, I think it's, I don't think anyone would say it's, you know, it looks really easy, but it, it certainly doesn't. Um, uh, oh, we got a comment right here. It seems you used uh, schema in one place and MySQL schema in another. Someone mentioned that? Yeah, if we look at the custom resource definition, we can see that uh, 
this is the official name of the, the custom resource. It's schemas.mysql.sample.javaoperatorsdk. And then in Kubernetes, everything has a kind. And that's the thing that you actually reference in your custom resource here. And that I called MySQL schema, but this stuff I just call schemas and schema, but it's completely up to me and I should have named this more consistently. Okay, duly noted. Yep, so, all right, how to set a Git remote. Yes, Git remote, set URL. Um, I guess we just, uh, dash dash add, okay. Origin now because we already have origin and there you, what the hell happened here? Come on. Okay, I, I have a bad feeling about like, uh, maybe the terminal is not working in, uh, oh man, I'm sorry about this. That's okay. Git remote. Set URL um, dash dash add original. Yes, that one, no such remote. Oh man, would help if I know, knew how to use it. Oh yeah, it's just git remote add. All right. And name URL. And now it will be interesting to see if I can pull from that. Okay. I'm not sure if I can just do this because the a branch on the command line main. Ah, okay. Let's see that. Uh, no, the schema class is still uh, still empty without any. Oh, no, sorry. Yes, we have schema. We have schema spec, schema status. Um, anyway, so it might be that I won't be able to solve this now. If it's uh, if the, the new code, everything looks still the same. Then I don't know what's the, what's the problem here. Yeah, it's still no resource type found for... Um, yep, I'm really sorry, but I think it's best if I don't uh, don't try to solve what was supposed to happen was that the operator would be running and it would go to this MySQL server and create a new schema here. And once we would go and delete the, uh, the, uh, the schema object that we created, which is the uh, schema mydb, then, uh, then the operator would go and delete the, uh, the schema from MySQL. So basically, and what's really interesting to see here is that 
the schema ha doesn't contain like any access credentials or anything to the to the database itself right so you have a complete separation of concerns to what do you expose to developers uh, through this custom resource versus what uh, all, all your company's business logic basically on who is allowed to create a database um, can they can people change the encoding whatever you can decide and encode this logic in the uh, in the code of the of the controller so by the way the uh, the controller uh, looks like this you can see here is the sql statement to create the schema so even though developers don't have access direct access to this mysql server the the operator itself does so the operator itself has admin rights to the uh, to the mysql server um, it also creates a user for uh, for that uh, for that database grants the privileges um, and what it would do which is a shame we can't see that now but uh, what it would do is yeah, by the way, what we're working on right now on the uh, as part of the Java operator SDK is to have tests for our samples because they break sometimes. Um, it creates a secret on in the namespace from where the custom resource was created. So inside that secret, it places the credentials to this new user that it created. So it doesn't just dumbly create a new schema in the MySQL server. It will also communicate back to the user what the credentials are by creating a secret object uh, in the, in the uh, namespace. So then a developer can actually use that secret, the data from that secret object, the username, the password, and the JDBC URL to, uh, to make a connection to the database, but only to that one schema and not use any kind of admin connection. So, the, so there is always a new user created for every single uh, database instance, and it's all fully self-service. Right. So there, that's, the, that's I think where the demo ends. Are okay. there any questions? No, no, we, we will get plenty of questions, I'm sure. Um, one of the, just a follow-up thing uh, about the mm -hmm. schema versus MySQL schema. Another uh, point mentioned by Robin Hood is the name of the person. Um, your very first item shown on the blue screen seemed to be a schema, not MySQL schema. Is this why it's saying MySQL schema is not existing? Um, so basically how this mapping works. Uh, I mean, something's definitely wrong here, but so the, the mapping works by um, this group has to match what's in the CRD. This version has to match what's in the CRD. And we it's true, we are not specifying the exact name and the CRD. And yeah, actually that might be the case that because this is, um, this is just schema and not MySQL schema. But now let's try to do this uh, because, yeah, I don't know how it would match this schema to the MySQL schema kind. So maybe we can either define kind here. Let's just try this. Okay. All right, we have a different error now. CRD was not found on the cluster. 
aha so it is generating the name of this so so it did manage to match this to the crd because now it's trying to match mysql schemas.mysql.sample so no the kind was not the problem because uh, it clearly could find the uh, the the crd but somehow it still couldn't then when it was doing the deserialization of the data it still couldn't which is like really weird then like i'm I have no idea why. How how can it be that it does find the, the because it, when it's when the operator starts up, it doesn't really need the CRD, but it checks if it's there. So it clearly um, can can find. It says it registered it for CRD. Uh, the schema class for that uh, for that custom resource definition. So it can do that, but once we uh, once we add the actual schema, it cannot uh, cannot deserialize it because it doesn't know what to what class to use. Yeah. So yeah, no, no. I was hopeful for a moment there, but uh, but it was all in vain, unfortunately. That's all good. It's all good. No worries there. Um, I guess you know other. It, you know, one of the things that we that was kind of mentioned there too is the the topic of GitOps. Um, it's a it's a word that we're hearing a lot. You know, it's it's, it's definitely a buzzword. There, I think there was mm -hmm. a collocated event in KubeCon that's just going to be focused on that. Um, you know, where what would you recommend for for folks that are wanting to get started out with GitOps? What are some what are what are some of the best ways? Obviously, practical experience counts a lot. But what are some of the resources or recommendations that you would have for for people that are getting started with that? Okay, um, right. Well, there is a, obviously a lot of information out there if you just, uh, just, just Google it, but what would be the best way? So first of all, you need to understand your, your, your goals with this. So it's, there, there are basically two GitOpsies, I would say. That's, that's really important to understand that GitOps for application deployments versus GitOps for infrastructure management is going to be somewhat different. So um, any kind of tool that does automatic reconciliation, you can use GitOps on, which is basically Kubernetes or Terraform or the other like Terraform equivalents like uh, CloudFormation, right? Um, and when, so when you manage like rarely changing but very uh, expensive resources like you usually do with Terraform or maybe with Kubernetes because you're running your database on Kubernetes, um, there your, um, your, your whole testing pipeline and everything will be will be different than when you're managing like frequent application deployments where it's usually the code inside the same container that changes um, and replacing and deleting it and rolling it back is like really cheap right so uh, so that's the first thing you need to start thinking about is like am I deploying applications using GitOps or am I uh, am I managing my infrastructure using GitOps and to be honest, managing infrastructure with GitOps is something we have done for ages. We just didn't really call it GitOps. 
Ah, uh, that's the other thing, that, which is a classic thing that happens, I think, with almost every technology, right? It's like we've generally been doing something, just we kind of group things together, there's a little twist, and put another name on it. And it seems like GitOps fits into that too, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, um, I think what, what really makes GitOps specific to other, like compared to like more general infrastructure as code practices, um, what, what uh, is that you would, after code merge, you always do a reconciliation. So no more manual steps, no more like check and approve and whatever inside some kind of pipeline after you merge to Git. So everything has to happen before you merge to Git. I mean, you can have testing and everything, but you would like test the PR and after it's merged to Git, there has to be a fully automated process. And you can see that, for example, Terraform doesn't lend itself really well to that. It expects that you will do a planning step, then you will read the output of the plan, then you will think about it a bit, go have a coffee, come back, push a button in Jenkins maybe, or even just do this locally. So it's kind of, the default is that kind of process. So you would be, it's, it's not entirely intuitive and many people don't use Terraform in like this GitOps way where you merge and then it's done and it's just an automated uh, process happening from there. Yeah. On the other hand, with Kubernetes, this comes more naturally also because it's used for cheap application deployments where rollbacks are possible and so on. So there, there it's, uh, it's, it's more often used in this way where you once you merge to, to Git and also, there are like tools that explicitly like do this thing where like Argo CD or Flux CD, where, which the whole purpose is that they are looking at your Git repo and they do a reconciliation immediately as it changes. There is no pipeline, no like steps and phases and whatever. It's like it, it, it's immediately reconciled to your Kubernetes cluster. And then Kubernetes starts reconciling all the things to your like resources that were inserted into the API server. So yeah, there are these two two different worlds, and and especially I think well, GitOps really emerged in the in like the application deployment world, but it's 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 very valid in both. So yeah. Okay. Uh, just a follow up question for previously, what are you what were you defining on the blue screen? What was I, sorry, say again? Yeah, the question is what, it says what are, but what were you defining on the blue screen? The blue screen where there's a schema and not MySQL, uh, MySQL schema? Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm getting the question, but let me yeah, share my I'll, screen I'll, again. Yeah, I'll ask, I'll ask. The blue screen, well, the blue, blue part of the screen was the console. You mean here? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Waiting for a response. So the question is, what was I doing on the console? Yeah, defining. Yeah, on the blue screen. Yeah. So what I was doing here, like, sorry about like, yeah, I was assuming the familiarity with kubectl, but basically what I was doing here is. Um, using the Kubernetes client tool, which is called kubectl, and using that to insert documents basically into this Kubernetes API server slash document database. So basically creating custom resources in the Kubernetes API server. So this, uh, this schema YAML file is, uh, 
is this, this file that we were looking at. So this defines the MySQL schema. And then I used kubectl apply yeah. to insert it into the API server. Okay, what, is, what, what was said now is, did you create an object on the blue console? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this, this kubectl apply actually creates the object inside the API server. So that's why I can now do kubectl get schema and get back the, uh, the, the MyDB object. If I would say kubectl get schema output as YAML, then I would get the, not the exact YAML I created because Kubernetes has a whole bunch of metadata to it, but all the things that were in the original YAML are still there. Okay, very, very good. All right, now, uh, okay, it, did you create an odd, okay, so in the schema, uh, YAML, did you define a schema or a MySQL schema? In the schema YAML, I defined a MySQL schema. So it's an input for the operator that then goes, talks to the MySQL server and creates the actual MySQL schema. So it would create a MySQL schema inside MySQL using with the name MyDB and with the encoding UTF-8. Okay, all right, good. Um, now getting to the, the the home stretch. All right, we have, we have if you have questions, you can keep asking. But we got a couple of specific things that I that I mentioned that I wanted to get to, um, just because I knew you had talked about this, you know, previously when um, having a, a customer that had everything with. Uh, with certain, you know, Microsoft databases and whether or not it was a good idea to put them on, on Kubernetes. This is a big question for our community, all right? This whole debate, you know, when does it make sense? The use case is necessary, is it beneficial? Not just the what and the how to work with data yeah. on Kubernetes, but also the why. Um, so do you think Kubernetes is ready to handle stateful workloads in production? And why or why not? Yes or no? What makes it possible? What's making it difficult? What do you think? Right, okay. Um, first of all, let me say this is going to be a pretty um, uninformed opinion. That's fine. I'm not the expert on, uh, on this topic. Um, in, in my opinion, it does make sense to run databases on Kubernetes. Well, the, the biggest problem here is, of course, like uh, moving the data around, right? So how does the clustering work? Um, what kind of storage do you have under the database? You could theoretically just have like local storage and then rely on replication, moving the data around, or you're sharing some kind of network storage under the database and then it's up to the network storage to make sure the data is always persisted and so on. And these are the things I can't really speak to. And uh, I don't know if Kubernetes makes anything worse actually. So that's the first thing, right? Like. When you run databases on virtual machines, um, Kubernetes runs everything on virtual machines also. Maybe you by default have less control on what runs on which virtual machine, but even that you can actually get full control if you, if you want to. So that part is that part pretty much works the same in the end. Um, the only thing is that you're not really using Kubernetes as you're kind of supposed to or whatever. But and that, that um, can be debated, you know, the, yeah. the initial design as opposed to how it's evolved and the capabilities that it has today. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the end, it's just a scheduler that puts processes on, on, on VMs. And there might be things I'm forgetting about here. No, that might, might be. But on the other hand, what Kubernetes does gives you, give you is a full management interface and, a, and then like a 
automation platform that yes, it can run processes on VMs in a really, really nice way. It can restart them. It can make sure that a VM dies, then it can move the process, et cetera. So you get all this stuff. If you add to that, like a really intelligent, high quality operator, if one has been written by somebody for your database, then it can be a really powerful uh, platform. So I, I would totally recommend um, running databases on Kubernetes um, as far as you don't run into like I know performance problems that you have like maybe more options to solve on a VM that I could imagine. Yeah. You know, you have more access to the whole stack with Kubernetes only exposing the hard drive in certain ways um, uh, through like limited APIs because of course that's on purpose. But maybe on a, um, yeah, if you have the direct access to the VM, then you have more optimization options. So that's, that's where definitely you, uh, you might test the usual case of more abstraction versus, uh, versus uh, more access to the deeper layers of your stack. Good. And just as a follow-up to that really quickly, do you think the biggest issue about running data on Kubernetes is the technology or the lack of trust or knowledge that people have? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, like, um, I'm pretty sure there is lack of trust and I, I'm pretty sure there is, there is both, but no, let, let me just not answer that question because I'm That's getting okay. out you of my depth. To, you and, don't have um, to, no, you don't have to, no, no, we're yeah. not going to, we're not going to quote you on this. That's okay. Following up, we got another question. We got, we got a little, still following the, the stream of questions in the YouTube chat. Um, I'm thinking the fact that you going back to the, you know, the, um, why can't you, okay, so. Going back to the, the schema or MySQL schema here, why can't you do um, K get MySQL schema? I'm thinking the fact that you can't do K get MySQL schema relates to why the error message is that a MySQL schema resource doesn't exist. Like you created a schema resource type, not a MySQL schema resource type at some step in the process. Right, no, that's that's not the case because if we look at the, uh, the not the custom resource definition, you can see that the custom resource definition links the, uh, the schema name to the MySQL schema name. So these can be, these are both names of that same thing. Just one is the, the name that is used on the, uh, on the command line using kubectl, that's these, those are these names. And then there is the uh, kind that is used in the resource definition. And these should all be mapped correctly too. And the name of the Java class does not matter or it does, but this, this is generated from the name of the Java class. So this is how it links the two, but, um, or, or I think no, through this one. So from the, the Java class, its name will be uh, lowercase and, um, and pluralized. And that's how we generate this. Or you could define it exactly yourself in the uh, using the annotations to map the Java class uh, to this. You don't have to rely on this kind of naming convention thing. But we know that this part of the process of matching the CRD to the Java class has actually worked. So uh, because otherwise the operator fails to start up. So there is some 
other problem and i'm i'll share it on slack once i figure it out I good promise. good no, that's a perfect excuse to continue the continue the conversation and speaking of which we have some questions from our stellar interns that we're not gonna have enough time to get to so we'll also carry the conversation there we'll just keep going on slack before we finish though we have a, a tradition in our community that we're, we're very proud of um, where while you are giving your talk, we have an amazing artist who behind the scenes is creating an artistic depiction of what you were talking about. Um, so <laughs> I, I think you can see my screen. Um, so our artist is Ankel and he always does an amazing job of being able to, to do a sort of synthesis of all the different concepts that were covered. Obviously there were a lot of things that were covered. Um, but anyway, I think it's a, a nice touch. So we'll be, we'll be sharing that on with you. Um, for, for folks, uh, Adam's really easy to find in, in, in Twitter. His name is Adam Sandor, but the, the O is a zero. Um, so quite easy to find there. Got lots of talks on YouTube. Um, I think this was really good. We got some great feedback in, in the chat as well, too. People like to see the debugging process. So that's what we got to see here, too, is that, you know, when, you know, things aren't going to go exactly as planned all the time, as you mentioned, the demo gods um, have, their, have their different days. Um, so, so yeah, I think we would definitely like to have you on another meetup in the future. Very, very informative, very honest. Um, I really appreciate that. So, uh, anything else that we need to know before we finish? Yes. I just looking at the logo, I just realized that I actually have a, uh, data on Kubernetes meetup t-shirt <laughs> that has arrived like a month ago and I forgot about it. That's about okay. It. I didn't want to get too pushy on the corporate branding. So I prefer if you want to wear it, you wear it. If not, it's not the end of the world. The only reason it... I'm not wearing it because it arrived like so early that I already forgot <laughs> I had, <laughs> had it. But yes, because we've been thank talking you very about... much for the t-shirt. No, no, it's no worries. Really nice we've, been, we've, been, we've been talking about this for about six months. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can you can put wear the t-shirt whatever you want in Amsterdam and tweet it whatever you want that's fine uh, thank you very much for all your time today and uh, hopefully we'll be talking to you soon well and like I said for all the folks out there thanks for all the questions we'll continue the conversation in slack another announcement we will we are doing a co-located event in KubeCon um, so if you would like to give a talk we will be or if anybody would like to give a talk we'll be sharing the um, I'll share the CFP here in the chat um, but yeah, the, the, the CFP starts from now. We'll be going all the way through August till September 1st. We're looking for talks that are end user focused. Please, no vendor pitches. I can say that a hundred times and we'll still probably get some vendor pitches. Um, but, but anyway, got another nice comment from Peter here. Last thing in the chat saying many thanks. You should write a blog post on this. That being said, if anybody's interested in doing blogs, we now have someone in the community who's just focused on this. So this is the perfect excuse to continue the conversation there as well. Um, thank you very much. Have a wonderful day and we'll be in touch. Thanks everyone. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.